Hi, I am Max Volkman, and this is Script Lock, where we talk about storytelling and video games. And I'm Nick Volkman. Today's guests are Corey Brotherson and Kelsey Moon. Corey is a lead narrative designer at Silver Rain Games, a writer and narrative designer on Windrush Tales, and is the editor and social media manager of Butterfly Books. And he also works as a journalist, critic, and content producer for companies such as PlayStation, Yahoo, and the Eurogamer Network. Kelsey is a narrative designer at Obsidian Entertainment on Outer Worlds 2. Before that, she was the narrative lead for Dangerous in the Motor Vortex, the lead writer for Death Carnival, the creator of It Girl, and was also a content designer at Jam City and a writer at Pixelberry Studios. Thank you both for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. And then before I get to our first question, I would like to say, as always, that everything I, Nick, say here represents my opinion and not the views or, or opinions of Insomniac Games or Sony Interactive Entertainment. Max doesn't have to say that because he doesn't work there anymore. And then now I can get the actual questions. Um, Corey, how did you break into video games? Oh, oh boy. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a long story. I'll try and make it fairly truncated. Um, so way back when, um, back in the early 2000s, I, um, I was doing a degree in English language and literature because uh, from about 11 years old, uh, I wanted to be a, either a fiction writer or a video game journalist. So that became the focus for me for pretty much my entire career, uh, like education. So I, I, thought I pursued that into um, my degree for English language and literature. And then when I finished that, I said, okay, I'm going to try and make myself as, as bulletproof as possible and as employable as possible. So I went and did an MA in multimedia journalism. Because uh, at that point, this was like, I think it was 2000, 2001. Um, so the internet was still relatively early. Um, and so a multimedia journalism course was pretty much unheard of at the time. I think the, I think it was the only one in the country. I went to um, do my master's in Bournemouth in the UK. And um, during that period of time, I had to do a placement uh, for my course. So there was a um, video game site called uh, Games Domain. Um, which was one of the first video game site websites, I think, across the across the globe. Um, at the time, it was kind of like Eurogamer before Eurogamer became Eurogamer, and um, and basically, I went to do the placement there, um, and they really liked my work. So when I finished my dissertation, they said, uh, "Hey, a position has opened up. Would you like coming to work for us?" And I, this, I mean, this was a dream come true. It was like destiny fulfilled for me at that point. So I said, "Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent." Um, and then became a games journalist for a couple of years. And um, things kind of cascaded from there. And it became this kaleidoscopic journey across the games industry, which I still find a little bit weird at times because after Games Domain, I went into I went to work for Yahoo because they bought Games Domain, I think a couple of years after I, was, um, I joined the company. Um, and then I left Yahoo and started freelancing for Eurogamer and EA and Activision, a few other companies around. Um, I also was freelancing for PlayStation. Um, and then eventually after about the second year while I was freelancing and kind of also getting myself into fiction, I, um, I was getting really tired of being poor. <laughs> so I decided that I need to go back into full-time work and uh, a position opened up at PlayStation. So I joined PlayStation uh, Europe and the UK um, as a content producer. And that's where I stayed for about 11 years, basically. I was very happy there. There was a few ups and a few downs, but I was very, very happy there for most of the part. Um, and then one day I was asked if I was um, wanted to come along and join uh, Windrush Tales game by Shella Ramanan, who is um, also creating Windrush Tales. Um, she's one part of Freefall Games, along with Claire Morwood. Um, they did, I think, uh, Before I Forget um, was their, their debut game. And um, 
she asked if I was interested in working on Windrush Tales, and I said absolutely yes. It's very much a, I guess, a nod to my background. I am half Sanctician, half Bayesian. Uh, my parents came over during the 60s, and um, my grandparents came over during that that same period of time, and so, like. Caribbean heritage is is you know it's there and I, because it's going to be the first Windrush game and created in the world it was like okay this is this is right up my alley but unfortunately PlayStation is a little bit concerned when you start saying you're going to start developing your own game sometimes it's fine other times it's not and this was one of those occasions where it wasn't so um at that point my wife had actually got a job in another city back in my hometown in Birmingham so we said like well here's a perfect opportunity for me to maybe spread my wings a little bit and do my own thing. So I left PlayStation. Bizarrely enough, I ended up freelancing for them for another year and a half after that anyway. But um, that gave me the freedom to work on Windrush Tales for a little bit of time. And then I was fiction writing at the time, still continuing my comics and still working for Butterfly Books as an editor and social media editor, um, manager. Um, and then I met Abubakar Salim at a uh, event um, called Ensemble, which is like a bit of a kind of exhibition. And um, he said, oh, I've got this thing I'm working on. Um, he's come, he's come, he basically came fresh off the back of Assassin's Creed and um, he said like hey uh, let's talk so we got talking a little bit we had a few meetings I did a few documents for him and he said like I, I love your work let's bring you on board the actual game itself um, and at that point I became a writer for Silver Rain Games and then over that period of time I, they kind of like said like we've got to make this a full time thing so you know would you like to be the lead narrative designer for the company and I was like yeah sure <laughs> that'd be amazing uh, and that's where that was kind of like I ended up being you know working on all these things at the same time but also managing to fulfill that dream as well over the space of like 20 and a half years of being in the industry um, yeah that, that's my journey so one that's amazing two so you wanted to be like game journalist initially you want and you were doing fiction writing too did you have any interest in doing game writing at, back at that point or is that something you didn't really think about yeah, I didn't think actually, I, I didn't really know what much game writing was there because when I was 11 years old, that was 1992, uh, I was going to say. Um, so back then, there was no literature about video game narrative. Um, the internet was, wasn't a thing. And so the only really access you had to video games outside the video games themselves was video game magazines. And no one really talked about video game narrative, video game writing. I knew obviously that someone was writing them, but for most of the part, I made the assumption that the designers were writing them or maybe other parts of the team were writing them um, rather than a specific role. Um, so it never really occurred to me at the time that that may be a, a dedicated job I could fall into. And it was only when I think I started becoming a games journalist, I realized that the, the field had started to open up a little bit more. And that I think gave me a little bit more insight into the mechanics of games dev and and I thought hey this would be a really really cool job to do but I have absolutely no idea how I can get into it or how I can actually do it at all um, and that was the same with fiction as well so I really kind of like I thought if I get a background in fiction then hopefully when something makes more sense for me I'll be able to slide into games narrative eventually this wonderful world which is suddenly kind of like for me has appeared and became a viable option to as a career prospect awesome and kelsey how do you break into video games yeah um so first i just want to point out um something that Corey said and i, I think i had a very similar uh understanding or lack of understanding i guess of the industry rather um i 
always wanted to write for games, but I, again, assumed that you needed to have technical expertise or that basically all of the writing that was happening was coming from designers who just happened to write or programmers, artists, what have you. So I never actually pursued it um, until after I I graduated college uh, with a journalism degree and uh, started just doing some screenwriting on the side. And even then, I, I didn't know that that career path was open to me until I ran into um, this this uh, really excellent narrative lead, uh, Anne LeMay, who used to work at BioWare and Ubisoft and is currently working on Gotham Knights, I believe. But I ran into her at a tech festival called Hackfort, and she was doing a panel about narrative design. So obviously, I was immediately interested, went to the panel just to kind of see what the job actually is and how you might be able to get into it. And speaking with her after, she was just so encouraging and basically said, there are dedicated roles now for people who want to do narrative. You don't need to have that technical background that you that I initially thought needed to happen. Um, and so she just kind of encouraged me to give it a go. Um, I had a portfolio ready. And in fact... Um, a couple of weeks later, she retweeted um, an opening for Pixelberry Studios. Um, I ended up applying, and that was my first role in the industry. So very serendipitous. Uh, it's it's all about luck and timing, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And LeMay, past and future guest on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Amazing person. What would, can you say what was in your portfolio? Yeah, I had a couple um, short screen screenplays, so um, each about under five pages. I had a um, also a short story excerpt that I submitted, so um, a little bit under eight pages total, um, plus you know resume, all that good stuff. Then, wait, you looking? You asking something, Max? Or, both of you, have, I feel like, have gone through applying for writing jobs with multiple companies. Do you both have like what you would prefer to do, like a a writing test or like how companies look for new writers oh it's me and writing tests do not have a particularly good uh, history <laughs> um it, yeah it's a weird one i i know kelsey's probably got a story based on on that chuckle um that i just heard you um yeah, it's uh, it's a really weird one because I, when I was at PlayStation, I started applying for a few narrative jobs during the the low point when I was uh, working at PlayStation, and I thought I want to merge these two worlds of fiction and video games together. And I did a few things here or there uh, for PlayStation, but nothing too solid. So I started applying for jobs, and um, the first thing that came up was one: it was really difficult to get people to actually respond to me because I was. I was very demure about how I applied for things. And it was just like, hey, I'm just a content producer. You know, I've done a little bit of fiction on the side, but blah, blah, blah. And they were like, okay, well, we're not going to pay any attention to you. So when I started stepping things up a little bit more, that's when the writing test came in. And usually it would be the writing test would come along and I'd get like a rejection saying, oh, well, you know, we're really sorry, but it didn't quite match up with what we've got in mind um, for the games that we're working on. And then that happened a couple times. And then a, a, a big AAA developer, which I won't name, actually approached me. They told me to go give me a call. And so I, I they kind of, okay, we started talking on the phone for a little bit. And I thought, wow, this is life-changing. I'd have to move country. I'm going to have to do all these things if, if I get this job. They loved the interview. Um, and then they said, hey, we've got this really kind of like humane writing test. We know that writing tests have got a bit of reputation in the industry. So we would like you to just do this one, which we think is very humane. So they gave me basically two tests. One of them was a on-spec test of a scene using characters from their previous game. 
um, and I had to kind of follow the spec. And the other one was like, hey, you've got the characters, but you write it however you want to write it. And I thought, okay, cool. So I took a week off work and just kind of started plowing away at it. Did it, thought I was really happy with it, kind of ran it through a couple of writer friends as well. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I got back a rejection. And the rejection was very kind of kind because it basically said, hey, the creative one, you smashed it. We loved your imagination. We loved your creativity. The spec one, well, you went off spec. So, sorry. And that was that. Was that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. All right. That's, that's fine. Um, I did another one after that a few years later when I left PlayStation. And it was very similar as well. And I thought, is it just me? Am I just reading these writing tests in a way which I'm interpreting them in a way which is clearly not to their liking or anything? It's like people don't seem to have a problem with my writing. They seem to have an issue with the writing test. Or maybe they do have a problem with my writing and they didn't want to say anything. They were trying to be kind. Um, so yeah, I for me, writing tests are a very, very funny thing. And even though technically what Abu put me through was kind of a writing test, it was more of a kind of like, I want to see how well you fit into the company um, with what I have in mind for the game that we're, we're kind of like very early developing. And thankfully, I did fit into that level. Um, so I think as long as it's <laughs> as long as it's in a way which I think I can understand, I can probably do better at it. But I clearly had, did not have a very good record with that sort of writing test when it came to the industry. Mm-hmm. Look, I I get why I get why writing tests exist. I I understand that uh, for a lot of studios that that's really the only way to vet people and kind of see, uh, you know, what writing chops somebody has. But what I found is so many writing tests are just not specific about what they're looking for, and yeah. you're just setting yourself up for failure, basically in in finding a, like a candidate that's going to knock it out of the park, and you're doing a disservice to everybody taking the writing test if you don't specify up front this is what we're looking for here are the exact parameters like can you fit this spec go the other thing is i think asking people to take like a week or two weeks out of their out of their already busy schedule to work on a multi-hour writing test is is pretty inappropriate yes um mm. and i i am talking just as myself obviously not as a representative of my studio um, that does do writing tests um but generally i i think especially for people who are struggling to break into the industry you know if they're already hustling on the side and they have another side job like it's going to be very difficult for them to put their best foot forward when they're competing with someone who can afford to you know, take time off to work on the test or, you know, maybe aren't working and are, are being supported by family or spouse or, or what have you. So it just creates like a higher barrier for entry, I think. Um, just like in many of the writing tests that I've seen, like some have just been so ridiculous that I get about halfway through and I'm like, you know what, this is not really a good use of my time. And if this is any indication of what working for the studio is going to be like, I, I don't think I want a part of it but I've been lucky to, to be able to make that choice because I wasn't, you know, desperately looking for work or, yeah. or anything like that. I was just going to say, the best thing is you do all that work on that super long test that you get rejected. They don't give an explanation why. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. It's like, Oh, sorry. That's not quite what we were looking for. It's like, okay, well, what, what were you looking for? And <laughs> why didn't you tell me up front? <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Yeah. It's yeah. very frustrating as an industry standard to have that lack of feedback um, because Exactly like you said, Kelsey, it's like you really don't understand sometimes where you've gone wrong, whether you're just not fitting in within the the spec, whether you don't fit in within the tone of what they've put down for what they're expecting from you, whether they think your writing's not good enough. It could be a, a whole range of things that you have no idea. And 
to get that sort of rejection back. I mean, we work in creative industry, so I guess rejection is part of that. But I think part of being able to get past rejection is being able to understand exactly why you're rejected in the first place. Um, and being thrown into that, that amorphous void of like, oh, you, we, I'm sorry, but we can't tell you why. There's not enough time. It can be really detrimental. And, and exactly like you said, if you're just starting out, it can feel like part of your world has suddenly collapsed in itself because mm-hmm. you're, you're not 100% sure whether you actually fit or, or good enough for the industry. Um, one of the rejections I got, I got on New Year's Eve. And I get why they did it, because I guess they were trying to kind of like, hey, you can start the new year with like, you know, fresh perspective on life and get over the rejection. What it actually did, it sent me into a spiral of depression um, because that was on my mind for the entire New Year's after that point. And because they couldn't tell me why they rejected me, um, it was just like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Um, You know, maybe I'm just not good enough to be a games writer Um, and all these other imposter syndrome demons start creeping into that space that has been left open by the rejection itself. So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a horrible thing, and I think there's still some ways for us as an industry to to go to help try and soothe that. Um, I don't have answers myself specifically because I know there's lots of entries that people get, and it's very difficult to sift through every single one of them and provide feedback from every single one of them on a personal level. But it must be a better way than what we have at this moment in time. Definitely, yeah. I mean, getting that rejection and not hearing anything in response is just so demoralizing. Like I, I would say, like I. I think once you get to the writing stage level, like there's already, you know, not that many candidates in the pool that have made it that far. So I don't think it's ridiculous for the studios to actually give feedback at that point because they're obviously grading the test on something, Mm -hmm. you know, so why not verbalize that to the candidate? Because obviously they're seeing something that isn't working on their end. So, you know, they, they already have the answer. Yeah, true. Yeah. I would only be okay with not getting any feedback if the test was paid for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's another thing too. That that should definitely be the standard, I think, at, at this point. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they sent that rejection letter on New Year's. That's insane. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> it was so brutal. Sorry. It really was. I like popped up my email because like my wife was my, my wife was my girlfriend at the time and she was like, Have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? I was like, No, and this happened for like weeks. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. popped up on my inbox and I was like, Oh, Oh my God, it's, it's New Year's Eve. They've, they've, oh. they've accepted me. And oh no, no, no. Here comes the punch to the gut. <laughs> there was some drinking that night. I can't believe that. They should have sent it a couple, at least a couple days sooner. It would have been so nicer. Weird. Yeah. Just yeah. tanked your, your evening and your, your new, <laughs> your new year. <laughs> Happy New Year to me. Oh. That moment after you send in a writing test and like when you get the email notification like from the company is probably one of the most nerve wracking things you could ever experience where like you try to like, not open the email, but read like the little preview text, like the like first couple of set, like first yeah. of it. And it's like, oh god, just just bracing yourself, like they're gonna say no. <laughs> yeah, or or you do what I do, and I like I just hand the phone to my boyfriend. I'm like, can you tell me what it says? <laughs> like I'm too scared. I'm too scared to read this. <laughs> yeah, you get to get to a point where I think as well because you start like striking, like you say, you get that preview. I think you kind of know the form of like if it's going to be a rejection, mm. the, the preview tends to be written in a certain sentence construction. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as soon as you read that, oh God, I don't want to open yeah. it anymore. <laughs> yeah, dear dear brackets, Corey. <laughs> Thank you so much for applying. We appreciate it so much. All right, I'm going to go to a less depressing, maybe this is depressing too, but uh, what sort of adverse adversities or barriers, if any, have you come against on your path to becoming a narrative designer? And 
Kelsey, let's go with you first. So here, I would, I would actually say that I've been very lucky. Um, so in addition to not really understanding that a lot of studios had dedicated narrative people, I also didn't really have a good understanding of what the dynamics throughout the industry actually were at the time. Um, and my first studio, Pixelberry, was excellent. There, were, there was gender parity, um, lots of diversity, um, and it was just a very welcoming environment to, to step into. So I think I definitely encountered the best case scenario in, in entering the industry in that manner. Um, and it wasn't until like maybe a couple of years ago that I was really aware of how toxic and um, unwelcoming the industry can be for a lot of newcomers. Um, so, I, you know, I would say... I've, yeah, I've just been lucky about where I've landed, so I haven't really had to deal with, with any adversity. At least, you know, nothing that I can spot right out. That's great. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it was definitely a shock, um, definitely seeing a lot of the news coming out in the past couple of years, just how bad it, it really was for, for so many folks in the industry and just kind of shows how far we, you know, we have a ways to go to, to fix all of that. Yeah. What about you, Corey? Yeah, very similar to Kelsey, really. Uh, and I, I'm I'm so glad, Kelsey, that you've had such a a positive experience because yeah, thank you, you too. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. It's um, it it really it really has been quite painful to see just the level of of abuse and poor treatment that so many people have had to go through across the industry. Um, you know, aside from the rejections that I got in becoming a narrative designer, I've had a relatively smooth ride um, for most of the part across my across most of my time in industry. Um, that's not to say I've not had a few bumps here or there, but for most of the part, I've not really had to bang my head against too many walls. And Silver Rain um, is very very similar to like you said in your experience, Kelsey, in terms of that level of inclusion, diversity, and open mindedness. Um, it was very much founded on those ideals as well. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, you have Mel, Mel Phillips, who is the studio head, and you have Abu, who is the, the CEO slash creative director. And they're both coming from backgrounds from themselves, like Mel being woman and Abu being a black guy, um, coming from the perspective of having to experience what they've experienced through the industry. And that's not to say they've, you know, they've had to go through absolute nightmares, but they've got their own experiences that they've had to kind of go through. And I think that has helped create the foundation of what they wanted for Silver Rain Games. Um, and you do feel that in the company, um, just through the, the makeup of it and the approach of it. And yes, we are a very young studio. Um, and I think, you know, an adversity that I'm still trying to, you know, work my way through is that I have never been in a, a formal lead position before. Um, you know, I've taken positions where I've project managed. I've had to, you know, basically corral a bunch of artists and letterers and such for one of the anthologies I wrote. And that was a challenge in itself. And, I've, you know, being an editor for children's books as well, that comes with a certain amount of management kind of skill. But this is the first time I've actually been like a formal manager. And that was something that I had to learn and, and kind of like understand. And I'm still learning. I'm still trying to kind of like figure things out and understand what my management style is. And, you know, I, I have made like, you know, little mistakes here or there. Thankfully, nothing too catastrophic or anything, but the studio is very supportive about understanding that there are a few of us that are still within that, that kind of phase and, and, and kind of really that position of 
hey, we're in senior management, but at the same time, hey, you may not have been given a senior management position before for whatever reason. And you may have come across situations that were sticky or difficult before. We want to make sure that we're fostering an environment that hopefully doesn't create that. Um, and so you come with that with as, as much of an open mind as possible. And, and for me, it has been like, it's been a great ride to be on and, and be able to understand that and see and be with people that are all coming from a similar perspective of that and wanting to make sure that we create less problems within the industry, hopefully on a whole, rather than increase the, the another brick in the walls that are constantly there for us. So yeah, I, I feel very fortunate that, um, you know, the stuff that I've had to deal with are, yes, there have been glass ceilings, but they are glass ceilings that have been hopefully kind of splintered in a way which has make it easier to get through, ultimately. I'm happy to hear both these answers. I, I'm satisfied. That's good. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess I guess one thing I kind of want to follow up on too is I I've noticed especially, you know, in the mobile gaming space, like there tends to be a lot more a lot more people of color working in that space, like mm-hmm. much more gender parity than you're going to find at the average AAA studio. Mm-hmm. Um so that's that's one thing that I've found um and so I guess that's it's it's one thing that gives me pause, I think, when I see a lot of people in the industry still talking down about mobile games and live service games. And, like, obviously, they aren't perfect. We definitely need to look at monetization models uh, that are happening in that space. But there are so many talented, like, it, just incredible people working in that space. So I, I definitely think, like, the industry as a whole kind of needs to take a look at, like, well, what are these studios doing that is you know, getting this this great talent and giving them a shot when a lot of, you know, big budget studios aren't doing the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I assume something to do with it also. The mobile studios tend to have more entry-level positions than AAA studios do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Which needs to get yeah, fixed and, along with, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, I think that they tend to be a lot more open to to, you know, just seeing people who have sent in applications, you know, for the first time. Whereas I think at, at a lot of, you know, bigger studios need to have that in. And the way to have that in is, is to be in that community, you know, and to be in that community, it, you know, tends to, to serve the same types of people is, yeah. is what I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a more craft focused question. Are there any common motives or themes that tend to be present in your writing? Corey, let's go with you first. <laughs> um, I, it's, um, bleakness <laughs> um this has become a running joke in our household now my wife refuses to read my stuff um because they're just they tend to break her heart and they tend to be so so bleak i, I say that with a caveat it's bleakness with the objective of creating a sense of hope and light at the end of the of the story but unfortunately it's um it does mean that things get a little bit gritty and dark at the start of things because i like that contrast i i like being able to going to go through that typical character arc of, of not being afraid of making the character come across it as entirely broken or mostly kind of damaged in some way to allow a sense of, I guess, optimism when they've come through the darkness of it all. But yeah, I do also have a strange eye motif. I'm not sure where this has come from, but most of my, most of my work have some sort of thing where I think it's because I love the theme of perception and reality. And so naturally, a visual metaphor of using that is usually kind of focusing on the eye. Um, 
I hate any sort of injury to eye, so I try to avoid that where possible. Um, but yeah, it, it tends to be kind of focused around the ability to kind of like how people perceive the world and how the person may perceive themselves and how those things come together in the in the creation of their arc, hopefully with something which feels a little bit more, um, a little bit less problematic by, by comparison to when it starts off when the character is in a, in a really, really dark or dismal place. I also hate eye stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I put you on the list. Okay, Corey, save to play. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Kelsey, what about you? Uh, let's see. Um, I don't know. I, I like sad boy hours. Like, that's just kind of, like, I really like, you know, writing those kind of characters that, you know, might have a chip on their shoulder and you know, need to just be brought into the fold, you know, through, through love or, you know, through understanding, you know, whereas they've been an outcast before. Those are the characters I tend to really gravitate toward and, and enjoy writing. Otherwise, like a lot of, a lot of the stuff that I've written kind of has like a, a fight the power element, <laughs> uh, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think, I think this especially goes back to like you know when I was a kid and I, did you did you guys ever play the Jack and Daxter series? Yes. At all? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Jack Two is like one of the first. It was basically like Baby's first fight the power story, you know, and it was <laughs> one that really resonated with me. And I, I don't know. I think like I've just been kind of chasing chasing that high ever since. Like, oh, I just really want to like just take down this government, man. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so cool and help my friends? Um, so I think, you know, like there's always going to be some elements of that, I think, in my, in my writing, just like, how, how are we going to make a society better for, for everybody? Um, you know, and just talking a lot about community and, and found family and that sort of thing. This kind of leads into another question I had, which what game do you, did you wish you wrote? And Kelsey, is it Jack too? Um, <laughs> well, my joking answer was like, oh, it'd be Watch Dogs Legion, because then we would just go full Antifa simulator. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, actually, my, my more serious answer is probably Dragon Age 2, um, just because okay. I, I think the character work there is exceptional. And it's still something that I, I look at today, even as I'm writing companions, like, I'm still just kind of chasing, chasing that and like, you know, what, what they've been able to accomplish. Um, despite how, how crazy the, uh, the production cycle was for that game. Yeah. You we like really to write it. on a healthy production schedule. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, that's what we want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just like the reactivity and emotional payoff, and it, like it really just comes down to how can the player create a relationship with the companions organically? Like, is yeah, that yeah. something that we can do and really push forward in games? Because that tends to be, you know, what people are, are after. I think in, in a lot of these style RPGs, like people will always talk about the companions and, Oh, did you do this? Like, did you make this choice? Did you romance so-and-so? And it, it tends to be like the universal thing that people really enjoy. About Absolutely. Games. Max, were you going to say something? We really need to play Dragon Age. <laughs> <laughs> and that really sounds like my kind of thing it. too. Yeah. Corey, what game would you, what do you wish you had written? Uh, this is a, a, a double-edged sword. My answer it's um, it's Hades. So I I love Hades. I absolutely love Hades. Um, I do feel like it would be an absolute nightmare to write. I'm not sure how Greg did it without losing his marbles, um, because it feels like I mean we've all 
work in the same field and I guess we all have to use Excel at some point and uh, it's just the ubiquitous software program that hangs over us like sort of Damocles um, and my idea of what Greg's um, Excel sheet must be like to track every single permutation and every single kind of like I guess strand um, of Zagreus's um, journey seems like an absolute potential nightmare in the uh, in the offing so I love that game. I love the narrative structure of it. I love what they did with it, especially given that, you know, Supergiant's, what, fourth, fifth game? It's still relatively early in the studio's life cycle. Um, but the ambition around that, um, especially tying it directly into the genre of a, a roguelite as well, that I thought was wonderfully smart. And I, I look at it and I think this is a, wonderful piece of work that they've done and i wish i could have been part of that um yeah absolutely love hades on on every level but especially the narrative side of things i do really enjoy the the craft of what they put in for that as greg said that he wrote wrote in excel i'm still like am i insane because i can't remember if he said that he wrote like everything existed in notepad like some insane piece of software yeah it was (laughs) yeah i think it was like a word it was something incredible. Like, I like no way that that should have worked. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was going to say I would love to see the documentation for Hades. Like, yeah. this is who I've become now. Anytime I play a game that I really enjoy, I'm like, what if I saw the documentation? Like, I just really want to know how do they keep track of <laughs> all of this stuff? Like, yeah. show me all of the outlines. Show me the Excel spreadsheets. I think I just, he shared something so online. Okay. I- I'm a gremlin. We're like, I want to know, like, what's the most fucked up part of your, part of your narrative pipeline? Like, how 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 bad can it get? Like, how how horrible is it to get one line of dialogue and then have to change it later? It's like, oh, this branch took three months to to, to finish. Ooh, Ooh. <laughs> it's like our 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 software doesn't let you use certain symbols. Otherwise, it'll break the entire thing. Oh my god! <laughs> or like, you can't use the percentage. Like, put oh a, god, this, a dollar sign next to parentheses. Otherwise, it'll fuck everything. <laughs> This, this just hurts me talking about it. It just sends a shiver up my spine. But to, to go back to Hades, I'm pretty sure if you ask Greg, he will show you his documentation. <laughs> All right. I might have to hit him up. <laughs> um, if he did write everything in Notepad, that's that's incredible. And I feel validated because most of what I do is in, is in Notepad. And then I just transfer it to whatever program I'm actually using. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure because Greg talked to the Insomniac story department. And then he told us all that. And then it was like he bodied all of us. Like we were all on the floor going, what? <laughs> that is that is incredible. I, I am I am almost speechless. <laughs> it's just because I, I use Word a lot of the time. Um so I'm so glad, Kelsey, that you said you use like notepad. Because <laughs> yeah. I feel like I feel like everyone always talks about like, oh, you know, when we're writing cutscenes or we're writing kind of cinematics, you know, oh, use Final Draft and like we use a little bit of Celtex as oh, well in ours. Yeah. But, but I'm like, I'm I'm too poor to buy Final Draft. Yeah, so, <laughs> Notepad is more stable than Final Draft. Yes, exactly. It is. Nick, tell them your my one minute diatribe that this has never happened before. I've used Final Draft for years, where I saved it on my computer on a Friday and I'm like, okay, this weekend I'm going to write more, which he shouldn't work on the weekend, but I did it cause I'm an idiot. And <laughs> I wrote, I spent Saturday and Sunday writing from like nine to six. I wrote so much stuff. And then I'd have, I'm like, I moved my computer to the office on Monday. I control S every hour, like if not every half hour on that script. So it was saved. Okay. I moved to the office. I opened the docs up. 
Nothing at save since Friday. Oh, no. And I go no. and check the autosave folder. Nothing at autosave since Friday. And I like, I broke shit. I was so angry. <laughs> well, this is why you use writer duet. <laughs> this is this is why you use anything but final draft. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I started out just saving PDFs like every half hour just in oh, case God. it breaks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, that's, that is painful. I'm yeah. Oh. It's never, I, know, I know it's ever happened before. I don't know. Okay. Then I came over. I hate Final Draft. Uh, oh, my heart goes out to you, man. That That is just, that is the ultimate nightmare. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. I'm going to skip to the last couple of questions just so we get them out and I can know we got them because they're good questions. Then we'll go back if we have time. But so each episode we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guest. And our last one, we had Zoe Franznik and Francesca Chongradi. Zoe asked, what has been the single most unexpected piece of media or life experience that inspired you in a major way and why? Kelsey, I want your answer first. Oh, boy. I guess I'm going to have to do it. Um, so it's probably 90 Day Fiance and probably like, <laughs> similar reality TV. <laughs> Nothing like, wrong with I, that. Yeah, I, I keep joking and threatening my, my Twitter friends that I'm going to do a GDC talk on this one day. And uh, basically, like the 90 Day Fiance producers are the best storytellers <laughs> in the business because they can just make drama out of everything and get everybody watching on board with the drama and... It's pretty incredible just kind of seeing how they're able to just take one little moment and basically create an entire storyline out of it. And so it's interesting, especially like when you look at branching narratives, especially in the kind of games that, that I write. Like, is there something that happens in one branch that might have cascading con- consequences later that actually isn't going to be expensive to produce or, you know, like a lot of time consuming stuff to to come back to i don't know if i'm making any sense right now yes (laughs) you are okay (laughs) but yeah so i i kind of look at the way that those reality tv shows are are constructed and it does actually give me ideas for how i might be able to construct things just in my conversations without it taking up a bunch of time but like just having those little callbacks that players can recognize from a previous conversation or if they come back to this npc um it can have a lot of payoff and people end up thinking that our conversations are a lot more complex than they actually are um, if you pull it off. So yeah, that's kind of my, my weird one. <laughs> I love it. Do that talk. I want to see it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Corey, what about you? Uh, for me, for me, it's probably um, the Sandman, the comic book series. Uh, I didn't know it existed. I, I actually stumbled across it on a trip to my local comic book store when I was a late teenager um and i'm a big fan of mythology i had this like osborne book of myths when i was younger and i used to read it constantly and i think my favorite story was um orpheus and eurydice um again really tragic and bleak story um and basically (laughs) um i kind of suddenly realize now basically i went to uh, this comic book shop and um i saw this it was actually the first part of the season of mists um storyline if any of you are familiar with the sandman um stories uh, and this is about this is a, probably about a quarter way through um the entire run and uh basically i was introduced to the endless and and the family there but i think it was the first and second issue that i picked up because um it was this wonderful clash of mythology it was like a bit of greek mythology a bit of japanese mythology a bit of norse mythology all blended into this incredible concoction and it blew my mind it was like 
here we had a story about stories um, and the power of stories and the power of narrative. And I'd never read anything like it before. And this actually became the cornerstone of a lot of my influence when I was um, from when I was a teenager up until into my 20s. Because I ended up writing a lot of my writing around um, after that point became about focusing on blending on mythology and looking at the power of stories in it. There's a series, comic book series that I write called Magic and Myths. Um, I mean, the, the kind of title was pretty much self-explanatory in that particular point, but it is very heavily influenced by Neil Gaiman and the Sandman comic book series. And that was also my gateway into Neil Gaiman's work, like on a whole. It became very much a, a point of me trying to understand what made his stories so compelling and what the the elements of his stories that I really liked. And when I was developing my own voice, I think that became a, a big kind of part of that. Um, so I think most of the time, if you read any of my stuff, um, you'll probably see those elements kind of there. Um, you know, hopefully I've right now I've developed my own voice, but you can see those elements of the foundation of where my own voice kind of like started to come from was from picking up that first or second issue of Season of Mists um, in, from the Sandman series. I love both these answers. <laughs> and then Francesca asked, what has been the game where you felt most like you truly were the player character and most immersed in that personality or story through that character? And what made you feel that way? And Corey, we'll go with you first this time. Um, I'm not sure if this is a cheating answer, but uh, the return of the Obra Dinn. Because um, mm. I know the player character is, is not really, is kind of very much an avatar for the player. Um but uh, the one thing that I absolutely love about this game, which I think is just phenomenal, Lucas Pope is just, I, I don't know how he does it, but is that he, obviously as us as a narrative designer, we're always trying to align the purpose of the player character and the player. And that's when you get the strongest attachment to the protagonist, typically. And if you can boil that down to a single verb for the game loop, then you've got gold. I mean, he's like, you know, The Last of Us protect slash survive, you know, the sequel, revenge. With Oberdin, it's always about investigate. And it puts so much agency in your hands that you practically feel like you are this insurance investigator, like going into these nooks and crannies, paying attention to the smallest of details, flipping through the manifest and trying to piece together this puzzle in this non-linear narrative. Um, it absolutely just enraptured me I, in a way which few games i think have over the last kind of five years or so the autonomy autonomy that you're given um and the i guess just enough kind of blankness of the personality of the of the player character there i thought was uh, was wonderful and i think it really lended itself to making you feel um that you are entirely in control of this investigation and understanding each part just and the way it rewarded you constantly um and strung you along i thought was was brilliant i thought it really would kind of allowed you to make you feel like you were that character entirely it's a great game it's an amazing I, game i need to finish it, it i want to play it again <laughs> <laughs> like i wonder what the replay value was like but it was it was so good <laughs> yeah yeah um okay so i guess it's on to me um <laughs> So I, I guess I have a similar cheating answer, <laughs> um, and that is uh, What Remains of Edith Finch. Yeah, I, I think, again, just like the first person walking sim, um, you know, doesn't doesn't talk. 
like you don't you don't have to worry about that like that doesn't take you out of the game at all if you're if your player character doesn't say anything um but i think just like the again the investigation and kind of adventure aspect of that game just like going through the house moment by moment and taking in the wonder of each of each um vignette as it happens in each different room um i don't know i just that game really means a lot to me and i i just think it's masterfully done and it's just one of the ones that i can think of in a recent memory that i was just completely engrossed in from start to finish like you know n- nothing that was going on in the outside world could reach me <laughs> when i was playing that game so i i yeah i would i would definitely say that what remains of Edith Finch is my my answer it's a wonderful game does having a silent protagonist ever take either of you out of the game only yeah, I, I think really only when there's supposed to be romance between the player character and an NPC. So I'm thinking specifically of Dragon Age Origins, um, if any of you have played played that game. Um, but there's Not like yet. a okay, so uh, so you can romance uh, some of the NPCs, some of the companions there. Um, but it's it's just very awkward when you're. <laughs> When your character doesn't say anything, so it's just like, oh, player name. He's that been, attractive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, player name. I've been waiting so long for this moment. <laughs> it's just like stone-faced player character, just not saying anything. So that's that's weird. But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, I kind of enjoy the silent protagonist. So. <laughs> what about you, Corey? Yeah, I think I'm same as Kelsey. I think whenever the game expects you to have this kind of strange emotional attachment um, that is this bond that is being created with the player character and the NPCs. Um, the disconnect is just so felt across it. I mean, I, I love the Zelda games. Um, you know, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful games. But I always find it amusing when, like, the NPCs are, are kind of like, they start reacting to Link in a certain way, and then Link's kind of like, ah, mm. <laughs> and then that's the extent of it. And it's just like, okay, this is, I'm not sure if you meant this to be as comedic as it is, but it kind of is. Um, yeah, it, it really, it tends to like jar me a little bit, just enough for me to kind of make me realize I'm playing a video game again. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I know they like sometimes like hang a lampshade on it, and it's just like, oh, you're the strong silent type, aren't you? Um, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love I love when they lean into that. That's yeah. always that's always a good time. <laughs> yeah, at least it's kind of like you going, okay, well, that's, that's cool. That's, I don't mind that too much. Um, but yeah, if there's like the narrative is designed to try and create this sense of like emotional resonance because of the player character, what the player character is doing, and the NPCs are reacting to in a certain way, I, um, I think that sense of gravity tends to be undercut when the character is is very clearly not trying to. Um, say anything because they've just made them a, a almost a blank avatar for the player to a certain degree. I know, like for example, Our Boy mute, leans into that by making the protagonist mute, and I think that makes sense. It's um, you know you can use that as part of the narrative in itself. But yeah, I think otherwise it can come across a little bit goofy at times. Okay, what's a storytelling related question you both both you like our next guest to answer? Kelsey first. Okay. Um. Let's see. Yeah, I would ask, uh, think about one of your favorite game narratives. Is there anything you might have changed or added to it if you were on the writing staff? An interesting question. That's a good one. Shots fired. <laughs> yeah, there might be some spicy takes in that one, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Kelsey just throws a grenade look, into the group. Yeah, like, I look forward to seeing, seeing the results of this. <laughs> Mario speaks. <laughs> Corey, what about you? Um, 
for me, uh, what are some of the most effective or powerful narrative-based techniques you like to see being used in games to immerse the audience specifically? That's a good question. And kind of related to this next question I have for both of you. What's one thing you wish game narratives delved into more often? Could be themes, mechanics, types of characters, etc. Kelsey, I'm going to you again. Oh boy. <laughs> and this is my question. I didn't have an answer. <laughs> um hmm. yeah, let me think on this for just a moment longer. Or of course you have an answer. Um I this answer is going to be slightly predictable, um, you know, given that I've worked on Win- I'm working on Windrush Tales. Um, but I would love to see more personal, historical themed games, which are linked to events that aren't necessarily um, well known or kind of like particularly popular in um, in our culture. Um, we have such a, a massive scope of potential and avenues we can go down and, um, when I think we, we narrow it down to, you know, we tend to kind of like look at the, the big wars and, and stuff like that when it comes to historical relevance. And I think there are so many undiscovered, or I say relatively undiscovered or relatively unknown uh, historical events that are a lot more, a lot smaller, but a lot more personal and a lot more driven by specific um, communities as opposed to specific people. Um, I think it'd be amazing for the games industry to be able to uncover those a little bit more it's such a powerful i know it's cliche to say this but it's such a powerful tool of empathy and learning and um i think being able to open that up a little bit more and investigate and and use those type of um events and uh, thematic kind of uh, hooks i think would be really really interesting for um a lot of games especially given that we have such a massive range of different types of genres that we could use to really help expand um, and understand these events from the perspective of the people who lived them. Our last episode kind of even delved into this a bit with talking about all these insane medieval stories that would make great games yes. that no one ever t- goes into. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, that's I think that's the sort of thing that that definitely should be explored more because it's it's untapped and it's exciting to have something which is is rarely being used in games and games is such a relatively young industry you know we can really kind of do so many great things with it it's um it's great to be able to explore these areas these little unseen pockets um that exist um so i guess like there's this idea i think um you know in certain corners of the industry that if games feature marginalized characters or protagonists that they need to be the shining example of representation just because like there isn't there isn't good representation of everybody across the board yet. So I guess I would I would like for us as an industry and as narrative writers to to basically get to a point where we can portray every kind of person as multifaceted. Like you don't need to worry about, you know, making a, you know, gay protagonist like messy or <laughs> you know or you know kind of show off like some negative aspects of their personality because now like the onus isn't on this one character who isn't showing up in any other game to be like the best representation of an entire community. You know, I, I would just like for them to be their own character, their own person. So I guess that's, that's kind of where I'm at. It feels like a lot of companies fall into that trap because they are, all right, we have one prominent gay character. That's all we need. So, but of course, because we only have one gay character, we have to make them the best, like the yeah, a good so version like of that the, character. They're the nicest person. They're like, yeah. you know, I guess like to use like an old fandom term, they're like the Mary Sue character. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I just don't think that really serves anyone. No. Honestly. 
No, it doesn't. It's like, because nobody, nobody is like that. <laughs> There's not one person on earth who is actually like that. And I don't know. I would just, I would love to be able to show different sides of a different characters' personalities and have that be okay. You know, so. Just have to get everyone bought in on it earlier because a lot of times you, you bring that up and it's like, that makes sense, but it's too late in production. Yeah. Can't change anything. <laughs> So the answer is just to have more diversity across the board. So we can yeah. afford to have that wiggle room. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say something about the blizzard, um, Activision, uh, that little chart that they published a while back. Oh yeah. <laughs> like the diversity chart. Yeah. Probably don't want to include that here, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, let's have more diversity, but let's not have that. <laughs> let's not have that. <laughs> I'll look at the show notes and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Another grenade just rolled into the group. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, I took that grenade and I threw it over there. <laughs> People can go find it if they want to. Um, how do you construct different characters or find your way when you get assigned a character? Do you like, do you have places to observe people? Do you watch movies? Do you read a ton of stuff? Like how do you start out when you get assigned when you're doing a character? So usually I look at the, like the entire roster of characters that we already have. Like, I think a lot of players respond pretty well to tropes. At least that's what I found um, early on in my career. Like everyone wants like a, a bad boy character, for example, if you're like looking for a romance. Someone was once like a prince, you know, a knight in shining armor. And, you know, like there's specific stereotypes that will show up um, that people tend to like to gravitate toward. Um, so I kind of just look at the, immediate roster of different characters we have and just kind of see is there are there any spots that are missing is there any way that we can kind of bridge the gap with personalities or with backgrounds and and things like that so i tend to go from there um if i'm just kind of coming into coming into something late and kind of trying to fill out the cast and so basically that's that's kind of what i do i i try to collaborate with other people um i look at tv tropes a lot just to kind of see different characters um that I might want to emulate and like, how am I going to make them very different from the character that I might be emulating in terms of personality or, or background um, or in terms of like story arc sometimes. Um, so that tends to be, you know, my go-to when I'm constructing a character. Otherwise I tend to just people watch when I'm out and about, like <laughs> there's definitely a lot of eavesdropping that happens. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but like, there's just so much that you can, you can just glean from just observing the world around you. Totally. Corey, what about you? Yeah, very similar to, to Kelsey as well. I think, um, yeah, observing the world is always a, a wonderful kind of cornerstone when it comes to character creation and character building. It's, it's such a weird and wonderful place at times <laughs> that you kind of come across these, you come across stuff which you may not necessarily thought of in, in the process of the building of the character. I do try to absorb a lot of pre-existing examples of what is out there to get a feel of what's been done before. I think, again, exactly like Kelsey, I have like TV tropes as one of my bookmarks and I'll go there and kind of like see kind of like some classic examples, especially if I'm stuck in a rut um, when I'm trying to put together certain aspects of the character. I guess it's a very fine line though. It's that, that level of not trying to get lost in a sea of other work and end up kind of creating these kind of false comparisons or false equivalencies, especially when you hit like um, classics. And then it's like, for me, I'll, I'll see like a, a classic character and I'll see, I'll try and break them down as to how they've been constructed in terms of the, the wider narrative of the, of the story that they're in. And then I'll either kind of 
been potentially inspired or alternatively i'll bang my head off the desk and go why can't i write this character is so amazing why can't i create a character as amazing as this one um and i just get caught in my own head and so it's trying to avoid that that pratfall of, of really just kind of like understanding what is there why it's being created why the character is in this particular situation and in order i guess the cascade effect that you have from the character making those actions throughout the story and what makes them make those choices and then working out from there kind of like okay so the character that i've created now would they make similar choices under the same sort of pressure or is the the story and the plot so intrinsically linked to the character that you can never divorce them from each other all of these things become thrown into that kind of like smelting pool of like oh okay so maybe the character should be this or maybe the character should be that and Maybe I should take this bit from this strange man that I saw walking in my street last week and muttering to himself, oh, that was me, and stuff like that. It's all part and parcel, I think. I think being able to just absorb all these different elements and hopefully that they make sense for the narrative that's kind of going forward um, there. It's, um, it's nice to not have a singular point of reference or a singular point of inspiration, I always find that if there is just one, then it tends to be, I tend to get really kind of like put into a bit of a, a blind alley. So yeah, having all these multiple points is, is always really, really useful. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, I, w- I would say too, using TV tropes is really nice for the pitching phase of mm-hmm. a certain character. Because like if you get an immediate point like, oh, this is, this character is, I don't know, I'm just going to throw some names out there. Like this character is Captain America meets Scarlet Witch. And, you know, immediately the execs are going to be like, oh, yeah, okay, we get it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's helpful, even if you deviate quite a lot from that, you know, uh, once you actually start like really fleshing out the character and developing them. But I, I feel like it helps me get a good baseline. Um, and then just thinking about like what purpose do they actually serve in the overall narrative and what relationship do they have to the characters around them. Yeah, playing with archetypes is really quite fun as well. Being able to take those kind of archetypal characters and kind of like understand what they are and who they are and being able to kind of like really just peel, kind of really macabre, peel back the flesh <laughs> and get inside their heads. <laughs> what a perfect sentence to end on. <laughs> the wonder my wife doesn't read my stuff. <laughs> Yeah, peel back the skin, but don't touch the eyes. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Uh, okay, but that, that was our. I forgot how we end these things. That was our podcast. Um, where can people find both of you on the internet? As I think you like to plug. Um, I can be found uh, at coreybrotherson.com, um, but I'm also Corey Brotherson on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, pretty much everywhere. I'm the only Corey Brotherson on the entire internet, so I'm very, very easy to find. Um, but, uh, but yeah, keep an eye out on stuff for Silver Rain games. We've got some very exciting stuff coming up. Keep an eye out on Windrush Tales because that is making its moves on Steam at this moment in time. And hopefully we'll have some more information to share on that too. And yeah, please just come and chat. Chat to me online. And Kelsey? All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KDLunas. Uh, K-D-L-U-N-A-S um, otherwise you can find me on LinkedIn if you really want to like I, I am active on there somehow <laughs> for some reason <laughs> um, otherwise like keep an eye out for It Girl I'm going to be publishing that uh, just a, a twine style game um, later this year and of course any any future news on Our the Worlds too Hell yeah. But yeah, come hang out come yell at me about reality TV <laughs> Watch out for a talk. And Star Wars. <laughs> and city planning. 
And our music was done by Isabella Ness. Our logo was done by Lily Nishida. And I think that's everything, right, Max? Yes. Cool. Then that's the podcast. Thank you both for coming on. This was amazing. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. It was a lot of fun. It was a massive amount of fun. Thank you.